Okay, good morning. Um, let's begin with prayer. And then we're going to finish all the minor prophets this morning. All right, so seatbelts on. All right. Father, we're grateful that you have already fed us this morning, both with the word that we've heard and also the word, Lord, that we have seen and tasted at the sacrament table. And we're grateful that you don't leave us to ourselves and to our own devices to provide a gracious outlet for ourselves, but that you give us these ordinary means of grace to strengthen us and sustain us in the daily warp and woof of our lives. And as we round out this morning with the um, this our time in the Minor Prophets, would you give the teacher clarity and those who are here to listen um, ears to hear and to understand? And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Okay, well... To kind of backtrack and see where we have been and where we are now, um, we started off in Hosea, uh, did a little bit in Joel. I think we um, just briefly looked at Amos, Obadiah. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, Obadiah is a one one-off chapter against the Edomites, which will come up up a little bit today as well. Uh, so we went to Obadiah, Jonah. We did a little bit in Jonah, um, uh, Micah. I've kind of skipped Micah because I've done Micah before. Uh, we did Nahum. So if you think, if you remember, Jonah and Nahum present these two very different portraits of God's interaction with Nineveh. Um, I, I, I think maybe what we have here in the final form of the book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets is Jonah and Nahum present um, idealized figures of what the nations could be vis-a-vis their relationship with God. You can walk in the path of Jonah and be those Ninevites, or you can walk in the path of Nahum and be those Ninevites, and those possibilities and options are before us. Um, So that's Jonah, um, and then Micah, Nahum. We did Habakkuk last week, which is um, actually a gem of a book. I mean, Habakkuk is a book worth reflecting on um, for time and time to come, actually, I mean, Habakkuk puts before us, I guess, some of the more acute questions that we wrestle with in our Christian lives, philosophically and theologically. What do we do with the reality of violence and suffering in our world um, in light of the reality that God is? I mean, these are the classic questions about the problem of evil, the problem um, of justice, and Habakkuk addresses that head-on and then um, says... Even at the end, even if I can't figure it all out, and even, God, if you don't act according to the ways in which I think you should be acting, um, though the fig tree doesn't bear its figs anymore, though the olive branch dries up and there are no more olives, yet still I will trust in God and hope in the God of my salvation. It forces the prophet and it forces us to look to the future in anticipation of what God will do uh, then, then and there. By the way, just kind of as an aside, um, that's not always a palatable answer to people. I mean, you realize that, right? I mean, you start talking with people about the reality of suffering and evil. I think I've shared this with you before. Um, I'm not big into apologetics. I'm thankful that those people are around. Um, I find the whole, you know, um, arguing and and the syllogistic, logical approach to it, and I, I kind of find it exhausting. I, I want to go and take a nap, actually, when I think about it. Um, but I did watch a debate between a, a theologian that I actually have some regard for named Gregory Bonson, who taught out in California. 
Bonson presents an argument for the existence of God that's not your typical argument. In other words, you think about those of you who've taken philosophy 101 or religion 101, you know about these arguments, right? You have the ontological argument, which is the argument that came from Anselm. Lots of debate on what this actually means, but Anselm's argument was basically um, there is nothing greater that can be conceived of God, therefore he is, right? I mean, that sort of thing. And, and then you have people like, well, that's, you know, I'm not sure about that. Um, I'm not sure that's all that persuasive. People often forget, by the way, that when Anselm said this classic ontological argument, he was praying. <laughs> now, this whole thing was a prayer. So, so that was actually an exclamation of praise. There is nothing greater beyond you upon which we can think. Um, and, and, of course, he was thinking philosophically. So you have that argument. You have the teleological argument about things have a purpose and a means that actually is moving to a goal. And so the arguments go on and on. Argument by design. Um, Bonson came in and he presented an argument that was very different. And his argument is one that's called the transcendental argument. And for those of you who fiddled in a little bit of philosophy, this whole notion of what it means to argue for something to be transcendental um, leans against, I think, our natural instincts for transcendentalism. We tend to think of something as transcendent that's bigger and greater and beyond that's not really the philosophical category that's often used in Kant onward. The transcendental argument is what must be for reality to exist. That, that's the, what, what matter and what reality must be so that things can exist and we live in the world in which we live. And so Bonson, he's going after this. And, and the guy had no idea. I mean, this, I mean, this was, I mean, sometimes I think people think theists are kind of stupid. You know, they, they believe in God. What a holdover from the Middle Ages. They just must be people not really come of age. They don't prepare real well. This guy, he was a prophet USC, um, I think in, uh, Berkeley, uh, was not prepared. Bonson ate his lunch. He just ate his lunch because he kept going after these traditional arguments. And Bonson said, I'm not interested in those and I don't like those either. But you just said a subject and a verb and put that together and you think that it means something. In other words, your whole world demands the reality of God, even in the fact that you're creating sentences. And the guy was like, well, what are you talking about? So you've got to press this. In other words, the fact that you even are and can speak and can communicate and can put verbs and subjects together demands the reality that God, he just tore the guy to shreds, right? It's a famous debate. Well, the less famous debate is Bonson, in the same Calif Southern Californian context, I don't know, sometime later, arguing against somebody else, and he went down his similar shtick, and it's a pretty powerful shtick, and, and um, his opponent would not let go of the problem of evil. It was, a, I mean, it was just a concede, 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 and then, well, bam. You know, in other words, you can say all you want to about that, but there are children that are dying in Haiti. I mean, and, and the emotive side of that is like, I mean, on the other debate, Bonson won hands down. On that debate, I'm like, boy, you know, where's the exit? I'd like to get out of the building as quickly as possible. The prophets are dealing with that too. I mean, the prophets recognize that there is, there are grievances and violence and suffering in the world around us that, that, the, that, that Christians can't just bury their heads in the sand on this. And it doesn't mean, mean that the arguments that we give are going to be palatable, but at the end of the day, the way in which Habakkuk ends and the way in which the minor prophets move in their totality is, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world everlasting. I mean, that's, 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 that's it. That's the answer 
to the argument. It's a confession of faith. It's not something necessarily that's a syllogism where you can go one, two, it equals three. Can't you see it so clearly? It's one, two, let's pray a lot and believe, right? That's kind of how it goes. So Habakkuk leaves us in that place, and it's a good place to be left. And then we move to Zephaniah. I wanted to look at Zephaniah a little bit this morning. Um, I'm going to close this door. Oh, thank you, Jim. It's my, it's my uh, neurosis kicking in. Um, all right, so Zephaniah, a, a three-chapter book. I want to just spend a little bit of time with this morning. And if we get to Malachi, we get to it. We, we'll, we can do another round of this sometime. But Zephaniah is a book that comes right after Habakkuk, I mean after Haggai. So you have, you have um, Habakkuk, um, Haggai, and Zephaniah. We won't deal with Haggai, but Haggai exists in the Second Temple period and really is an apologetic for why the temple needs to be rebuilt. It's a, it's a call to rebuild the temple on the far side of the destructions and the ruins of Jerusalem. And Zephaniah comes in as a book to support that claim. Um, yes, the temple needs to be rebuilt, and it's a call to a certain kind of living in the midst of that rebuilding of the temple. Now, this is how the book, it's a beautiful little book, um, this is how it's formed. Um, you have three sections here. You have section 1, which is chapter 1, verses 2 through chapter 2, verse 3. And in this section here, we see the Lord doing what the Lord tends to do in the prophets. This is on the far side of the exile. Right. This is on the far side of the judgment that happened that elicited the Babylonians coming and then them, their land being stripped and being forced into another land and the temple and the walls being destroyed. This is on the far side of that. This is on the far side of the decree from uh, Cyrus, the Persian king, who had a, I guess, a, I mean, this is debated, but he had some policy of tolerance, unlike the Assyrians and the Babylonians, that encouraged everyone, go back to your lands and build your temples and worship your God in the way in which you want to worship. And this is on the far side of that. Remember, Nehemiah was in Cyrus's court. And Cyrus said, go um, and rebuild your walls and rebuild your temple. And matter of fact, I'll pay for you to go do it. And so here he goes back into the land. So we're in that phase of Israel's history. And still the word that's coming from the Lord is a word of of warning, a word of, of judgment, of pronounced judgment uh, on Judah and on the broader world. Listen to this verse. It's a verse that wouldn't surprise you, I don't think, given what we've talked about already in the Minor Prophets. Chapter 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. It's near and it's hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. Darkness, gloom, clouds, thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and a battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I mean, this is, again, if you think about Amos and Joel, we've already seen this. This theme of the day of the Lord continues to reverberate throughout the Minor Prophets. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Why are you hoping for the day of the Lord? Amos says. It is not a happy day. It is not a sun-filled day. It's a day of darkness. It's a day of gloom. That's what the prophet is saying there in Amos and then in Joel and here in Zephaniah as well. So that's the first oracle. And then the second oracle or pronouncement in chapter 2, verses 4 through 3, verse 8 is um, an oracle against the nations. 
So here God speaks first to Judah, and then he go against the Carathites and the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites and all those ites that we hear about. They come under God's judgment as well. This is, this is the hard word. In other words, the question that's going to be pushed on us in the Minor Prophets, and that really reaches its zenith, I would say, in the book of Malachi, is these clear categories that you may have had, Israel and the nations, these clear categories of Israel as my elect people, and the nations as those who are not elect. That notion there that you have, of that clearly defined notion of election, is not going to sustain anymore. The question that becomes more and more apparent is, who are the real friends of God? Who are God's friends? And the surprise is, God's friends are composed of both those who are inside and those who are outside. It's a shocker, actually. Um, it's a shocker that we find in the New Testament as well. When Jesus begins to, we talked about this last week, or, or one of the weeks, when Jesus announces his messianic identity to a Samaritan woman, right? It's like all of a sudden our categories, our clear categories of insider and outsider are beginning to become like Sam through our fingers. And now we're raising the question, well, who's in and who's out? Who are the friends of God? It's not just drawn along national ethnic lines anymore. The question is, who are the righteous and who are, are the wicked? And the righteous and the wicked come from both in Israel and outside of Israel, both at the same, at the same time. So any notion, any kind of, I, I would consider it more and more to be rather facile and surface, notion between Israel as elect and the nations as those who are set over against Israel really begins to get very blurry in the prophets. Matter of fact, in Isaiah, in the latter part of Isaiah, you see this language of foreigners coming to be Levites and eunuchs unto the Lord. I mean, it's the kind of verse that you read over and then you get a few verses by it and you go back to it. Like, what? I mean, foreigners and eunuchs actually, goyim, like you and me, actually serving in the temple? I mean, that's preserved not just for Jews, but a special tribe of Jews, the Levites, and here you have foreigners who are acting as priests before the Lord. Our categories are beginning to get all messed up, and Zephaniah is speaking into that as well, and it reaches, I think, a really pinnacle level in the book of, in the book of Malachi. Um, I don't know if we'll get there this morning, but um, you, you can pursue that. So the, 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 the oracles against the nations are there, and then now we come to where, where I wanted to get to this morning, um, chapter 3. Um, verses 8 and 9. Here is the transition that begins to occur. Right? Um, I've cut off the nations, he says in verse 6. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets. Surely she will fear me. She will accept correction. She will not lose sight of all that I have enjoined upon her. Then verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, for the day when I arise as a witness for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour upon them my indignation, all the heat of my anger. For in the fire of my jealous wrath, all the earth shall be consumed. So, do you remember this notion of waiting? We saw this last week with Habakkuk. Habakkuk raises the question, the, the very hard question, about the justice of God. God, are you just? Are you good? 
right? Which is a kind of flippant thing that I think we can say in our, I don't know, bumper sticker Christianity approach to things. But um, the goodness of God is challenged, I think, realistically and existentially given the reality of our world. And Habakkuk puts it right before us. Are you really good? And God says to Habakkuk, write this message down, put it on a tablet, make it plain. And if it tarries, wait for it. The word of promise that I'm giving you, even now in the moment of the angst that you are experiencing, which may not be alleviated in your current moment, wait for it. Wait. My promises are sure. Even when they're intangible, even when it seems beyond the pale, my promises to you are sure. Wait for it. And here, God says to Zephaniah something very similar. Wait for it. What is it that we wait for? We wait for the judgment of the Lord to be poured out against all nations and all kingdoms. Now, that doesn't really sound like Christmas, does it? A, like, well, you know, I waited, and that's, that's not a trip to the prom, right? I mean, this is, a, this, is not, this is a hard moment. What is it that we're called to wait for in the reality of the current crisis that we live in in our lives? We wait for the judgment of God to be poured out like a fierce um, wrath, a hot fire against all nations. And this is what I think is crucial. I think it's central here to begin to think about a text like this Christologically, to begin to think about a text like this Trinitarianly. Because what do we see, and I'm going to press on this a little bit more as our time goes on, but what do we see as we move into the Gospels? We see... For whatever you make of Jesus, one thing for sure that we have to see front and central is that Jesus doesn't necessarily arrive as a happy presence. In other words, blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus, Jesus storybook, Bible Jesus. I love that book, by the way. But you know the, the kind of the one that you just want to sort of snuggle up with and and, and uh, drink something together on a porch and talk through the evening hours. That's not the Jesus who shows up at the beginning of the Gospels. I mean, Jesus shows up announcing repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. Another way of saying that is, in light of our, of our text this morning, Jesus shows up to say, Zephaniah Day is here. Right? Um, that What you've been waiting for? For God to amass the nations and to pour out His judgment on them? You've been waiting for that? That's now. And you would be wise to do what the prophets say again and again. Repent. If you haven't done so yet, now's the time to repent. Because the judge has arrived. I mean, John puts the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of his gospel. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, put the cleansing of the temple at the end of the gospels. But wherever one locates these in the historical life of Jesus, whether he did it twice or just once, and people mess around with the chronological narrative, Jesus cleansed the temple. And who has the authority and the right to do that? No one does except for Yahweh, the returning judge. And here's Jesus embodying that. He's Yahweh, the returning judge, pouring out His judgment on His people and also extending that judgment to the nations beyond. And this is the part of the Gospel that catches us by surprise again and again and again. A text like Zephaniah, the one that we just read, I think has a far reach to it. But at its central reach has to do with the fact that Jesus took this jealous anger 
indignation, the fire of my jealous wrath, where all the earth is consumed. That Jesus took that on Himself. The, the judgment that Yahweh embodied in Jesus comes to bring against G- the Israel and the nations. He allows in a passive moment to be turned in on Himself and He takes that judgment, that consuming, fiery, jealous wrath, and He lets it pour out onto Himself. Now there's lots of debates these days about the atonement. About how we understand the atonement, how we understand the work of Jesus. I'm one of those people who believes that really one metaphor is not enough. We probably need multiple metaphors to help us gain access to the fullness of the picture of what Jesus did. Did Jesus defeat the devil at the cross like the early church seemed to emphasize? Certainly He did. He is victor. Is Jesus a sacrifice on the cross? Certainly He is. Is He a human representative? Certainly He is. Is He even an example for us? Certainly He's that too. So I think multiple metaphors come together to help us see the fullness of this of this picture. But in an effort to do so, so and I can remember Frank Limehouse. I mean, he's sort of you know speaking in the room right now. Limehouse came back from some conference, and if you, you know, you all remember Frank. I mean, Frank could get hot fast, and uh, and he was hot. He was at some convention or something, and. Someone talked about the atonement and tried to make it nonviolent, and they didn't like the violent character of the atonement because it was something like cosmic child abuse. They didn't like that, and and oh, I mean, I mean, Frank was just fit to be I mean, coming undone. And you know, honestly, there's a part of me that gets why that's offensive. I mean, there's a part of me that gets why did it really have to be like that? I mean, did it really have to be bloody like that? Um, it does seem to be, I mean, because I, I cannot divorce something like the picture of Zephaniah from what I see happening at that moment at the cross. I can't do it. I can't take judgment and wrath away from that scene. To do so for me would mean that I would have to evacuate the entirety of the prophets that help shape how I understand the cross. I just can't do it. But this is one thing that I think people often forget in this discussion, and that is... This is an inner Trinitarian decision that God has made in His own self to be this kind of God. In other words, God Himself, not because something external to Him was forcing Him, you have to have some blood and it has to be violent, and it has to be... No, God out of His deep and overwhelming and infinite mercy decides within Himself the God that He's going to be. And that is a God that enters into the world and allows His own wrath to be brought into Himself. He brings it in. So when we look at the cross and we think about that verse in Amos, in wrath, remember, in wrath, remember mercy. It's a great text. When we look at the cross, that's exactly what we see in its totality. In wrath, God is remembering Mercy. He's both being true to himself and he's being driven by a merciful love for his people to allow that wrath to come into himself and to be absorbed into the very life of God. I think we must have a robust doctrine of, of reprobation, of, of damnation. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's not the happiest topic that we can have, but a robust doctrine of that. But I begin a discussion of that doctrine by looking at the cross and seeing that Jesus is reprobate for us. Do you know that Jesus at the cross is both elect and reprobate at the same time for you and for me? 
He takes on our election. He takes on our reprobation. He lives our life. He dies our death. The totality of it is seen, is seen there. Um, I, I think this is a significant point to be made here in light, of, in light of Zephaniah, that this portrait that's painted of this overwhelming wrath of the day of the Lord is being poured out in excessive fury and heat that that has got to have a cross-shaped understanding to it when we begin to read the prophets and come to terms with what that means and what its long-term significance is. Well, I'm going to press on. All right, so that's, that's, this is the change here. So you have this announcement of judgment at verse 8. And then you have this announcement in verse 9 that's actually rather surprising. Yea, at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. What's the effect of the pouring out of God's judgment in verse 8? The effect is our speech changes. We begin to talk differently. Um, I took a picture this morning of a commentary from Luther that I wanted to read. I tried to copy it, but it all went to shreds on me. Can I read this to you from Luther? This is Luther's comments on this verse right here. Um, I'm not a tech person, so this is a bit of a... uh, I'm feeling rather um, hipster right now. (laughs) This This is Luther's comments on this text. The prophet selects all his words in such a way that we can have no doubt that we must take them all to mean the gospel. Thus he here is describing the invocation of the name of the Lord and the single-hearted worship of God as pure speech. Therefore the meaning is, I will remove those who corrupt their own deeds, who adulterate the word of God, who use impure speech. I will establish a holy people for myself. I will give them pure speech. They will teach my word in purity and will call upon my name. What does he say here? He says, you see, when they mix works and confidence and works with the doctrine of faith, they cannot invoke the name of the Lord. For how will they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? What Luther is saying is here, what's the pure speech that comes from this? The pure speech is the pure speech of the Gospel. What other speech could it be? It's a speech that recognizes the reality of God's judgment and the reality of God's mercy as having taken place fully and totally in the person and work of another for us. That gives substance to what the prophet is claiming here. And how is our speech rightly ordered in that way? It's speech that's ordered, that moves toward the reality of what it is that we confess to believe. I don't know if you remember, but back in Hosea, Hosea the prophet at the end of his his book says, uh, when that day comes, when the day of repentance comes, take words with you. Great turn of phrase. Take some words with you when you go. I mean, here's Zephaniah saying, take some pure speech with you when you go and when that day comes. And what is the pure speech? The pure speech is a recognition that what has happened for us and in us can be nothing other than the work of someone else. It moves beyond us, away from ourselves to look at another. And that's, get, it's not a surprise where the prophet goes here. Matter of fact, I think we can almost anticipate it. Where he goes right from here is to humility. From verse 9 and 10, then he goes into verse 11. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. 
You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, for I will leave in the midst of you a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. Luther again says, in few but very beautiful words, he is describing the church of Christ. That is, a poor, needy, and oppressed people who call on the name of the Lord and hope in the Lord. This is the greatest righteousness. This is the purest worship. So he puts speech in their mouths, pure speech. And what does that speech look like in the next few verses? A people who are humble, who are not haughty, who recognize that if they're going to boast, they boast in the Lord. Again, Paul knew his Bible so well. Isn't this what Paul says all throughout Romans, all throughout Corinthians? If you're going to boast about something, if there's some achievement that you feel the need to boast about, let it be a boasting in the Lord and what the Lord has done for us. When the day comes and judgment is poured out and God's righteousness is revealed, the only proper response that the, Christ, the Christian can have is one that's overwhelmed by humility and meekness. Uh, it's Job's response. I put my hand over my mouth. I can't say anything that draws attention to my own achievements and my own efforts because it's all been done in another. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, I'm, I'm not a C.S. Lewis person. Um, I've mentioned this before, and that's not a badge of honor, um, but I have st- uh, been reading his screw tape letters. Have you read these before? Man, they're good. And a little bit unnerving, actually. Each one of us has our own demon and angel working against us. That's not good news for me, um, but I guess, you know, okay, Lewis, thank you. Um, this is what he says in one of the letters. I just read this last night, and I thought, so attached to humility. Um The most alarming thing, he says, my dear Wormwood, in your last account, is that he's making none of those confident resolutions which marked his original conversion. So this is the guy that Wormwood is working on. He's a convert to the faith, um, and his his uncle Screwtape is writing him letters. They're demons, right? Writing them letters to say, and this is how you need to work on him. Goes after sexual stuff. Goes after—I mean, just it's all in there. And Lewis's his insight is actually rather, rather um, amazing. So here is is a, a screw tape saying, "Oh, by the way, I'm a little bit um, disturbed to hear that he's not making these confident resolutions, which marked his original conversion. No more lavish promises of perpetual virtue, I gather. Not even the endowment." Or the expectation of an, of an endowment of grace for life. I mean, are you hearing this? I love this. Because I mean, we all know this. For those of you who maybe were, can remember your conversion and what happened after it. I mean, I love being around people who have just come to the faith. I mean, there's just this beautiful... Um, and I don't want to say naivete because that's not the right way to put it. There's just something beautiful about moving in in the newness of faith. They're on I would use it in my old language. They're on fire for Jesus, right? And they make all kinds of crazy vows. Like, I'll never do this again. I'm never going to do that. And you're like, well, okay. I mean, I, I, I was, um, you know, I, I had a, a friend who was on the phone recently who's, who something was going on in his life. And, and he, he began to kind of do this. You know, uh, something crazy happened over the weekend. And, and now I'm just as sure that's not going to happen anymore. My, this isn't, I'm like, well, you, whoa, be careful there. And the, so here the uncle saying, he's not doing that anymore. And that's a sign of, of maturing in the faith. 
He's not making these claims about, I'm going to have a grace that's going to sustain me in my virtuous living for the rest of my life. Rather, it seems that he only has hope for the daily and hourly penance to meet the daily and hourly temptation. This is very bad, says Scrutin. I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient, the guy you're working on, has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? What a great line, right? Your patient, I don't think he knows this, but the fact that he's not making these kind of confident claims anymore, the fact that he sees himself in need daily, hourly, for God's grace so he doesn't yield to temptation, that's very bad news. He's become humble, but I don't think he knows it yet. So why don't you let him know that he's humble? Right? <laughs> All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride in his own humility, will appear. Um, I, this is wonderful, right? I, my, my father's here today. My father's, I can remember him always saying growing up, the moment you accept the award for humility, you have to give it back, right? Like, um, and, and, I, and this is, I think, what the prophet is telling us, right? The prophet is telling us in conjunction with the, with the New Testament, what's genuine humility? Genuine humility is not a kind of, um, I don't know, it's, it's not a personality trait. I think that's the thing. It's not a personality trait. Genuine humility is a recognition of daily and hourly dependence on the other that causes us to recognize that we don't have the internal resources to make our spiritual lives happen, whether by getting in or by being sustained or by being glorified in the end. It's a recognition in the famous hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And how does the prophet end in this? People who are humble, People who recognize they have nothing but what the Lord has given them. They seek refuge in the name of the Lord. They find their salvation under His wing and His wing alone. And that's how they identify themselves. This is how they're described. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O Jerusalem. Those of you who are like that who are humble, who recognize your dependence and boasting in the Lord alone, who've taken refuge in Him, because the Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He's cast out your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. A warrior who gives victory. You look at the cross and you see Jesus doing battle for you. He will rejoice over you. Oh, this is great. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. And one of those lines that just grabs me every time I see it, he will exult over you with singing. Can you imagine that? I don't know what your view of Jesus is or your view of God, which is so shaped by so many cultural and assumptions and wittingly or unwittingly, our view of God is shaped by things that we don't even know our view of God is shaped by. But I know that a lot of us think of God primarily with a frown, right? Um, it's hard to see, but God must be frowning a lot. Right? But what's the picture here in Zephaniah? The picture in Zephaniah is those 
who are poor in spirit, those who recognize that they have to find all their refuge in the shadow of the wing of the Lord alone, who see their salvation and their lives completely dependent on Him and His work for them. Do you know what the picture of God is there? He's singing love songs over you, rejoicing over you, delighting in you, because He's delighting in what His Son has done. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That we come together in church on Sunday morning, if I can bring Hebrews 2 in here, that we come together in church on Sunday morning, we confess our sins right out of the gate. I mean, right? I mean, we just, we're not even down for two minutes. And we're all saying how bad we are, right? And that we need a Savior. We hear the law and we ask for the Lord's mercy. And then we begin to sing. And the way the Bible presents this to us is, and when we're singing, Jesus is in our midst singing right along with us. And here's Zephaniah telling us, and God is rejoicing and exulting, standing up and singing. It's actually kind of a, a little, it brings a little blush to the cheek to think about it. But God, the creator of the universe, the one who brought that rain in today and is now moving it on out, is the one who stands up and looks at his children who he sees through his son and he sings over us. So Lord, I don't know how else we... Respond to that, but, but with thanksgiving and with a real gratitude that, Lord, we all know how prideful we are. We know how quick we are to self-congratulations. I know how quick I am. But Lord, at the end of the day, we also all know that we have nothing if we don't have Jesus. And in Him, You have given us eternal life. The very words of life we have found in Jesus. Let us take refuge in that and let us, Lord, rejoice and find peace and repose in the knowledge that you sing over us because of that. In Jesus' name, amen.